Hi, thanks for being here with the Austin Connection podcast. The first thing you should know about the Austin Connection is that it is also a free newsletter. Join us at austinconnection.substack.com to find a community of people connected around the stories of Jane Austen. See you there. I think one of the loveliest things about a romance book versus anything else, including um, romance films, is the way it can explore different fantasies that we might have very, very safely. (laughs) In a romance book, nobody gets their characters. They're not real people. There's no actor or performer being exploited. You know, you you can explore some things that might be um, a little bit trickier. What makes a great hero, a great heroine? And what about the rakes and rogues of Regency romance? How are these romantic worlds and characters, are Darcy's and Knightley's and Lizzie's and Emma's, created? How are they written? And how are romance writers today building on and expanding the romance tropes and characters and worlds created by Jane Austen and also 18th and 19th century novelists like Frances Burney and Mariah Edgeworth? This is the Austin Connection. Thank you for being here. Well, a great person to help us look into all of this is our guest on today's episode, author Felicity George. This is her pen name. She's a writer with a new romance series, the Gentlemen of London series, and the first installment of Ladies' Risk is out right now. A Courtesan's Worth is on the way. We began by talking about how Felicity George went from laws of romance reading to laws of romance writing during the pandemic lockdown when schools and her own drama classes she teaches were on pause. Her imagination went wild and her dream to write romance became reality. Here's our conversation. Without a creative outlet, I go a little bit crazy, (laughs) especially when the world was so strange back then in spring of 2020. So I decided to channel my creative energy into going ahead and and writing a novel, the novel I'd always wanted to write. So that's how I got started. All right. Uh, what What would you say are your favorite romance tropes and how do they come into play in what you sat down and wrote in A Lady's Risk? Oh, I think I love so many romance tropes. And... So all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And because it's quite exciting because Ladies Risk is book one in a five book series. So I get to use a lot of my favorite tropes over the course of the whole series. Yeah. Um I I did start with a classic. I started with enemies to friends to lovers or enemies to lovers. And um, I I, I think that is definitely one of my favorites. Um, If, if, we consider it my favorite book of all time as like many people probably that listen to this podcast, that would be Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. which is yeah. a wonderful <laughs> enemies to lovers trope. Yeah, um, that, that book comes up a lot. <laughs> yes, I would imagine. But yes, you're right. Yes. The classic, like the, the OG, probably enemies to lovers, perhaps. I mean, there's probably others out there, but yes. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it might be the OG. It really might be. Um, I mean, if I think, I don't, I don't remember like um, Frances Burney having any, and she's sort of, or, uh, or even Mariah Edgeworth. It's funny. Um, I, I'm reading Evelina right now. Um, I love and, that book. 
Do you? Yes. And I do you see any? I mean, you're right. I don't see quite enemies to lovers, but there is definitely some contention. There's a there's a bit of um, Henry Tilney. I'm saying like a very clever and a very sort of um, inquisitive and watchful Lord Orville. And, and then there's just that that slow burn, you know, just like that slow, like restraint um, that goes on for hundreds of pages. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very much. Especially there. slow, maybe in that one. <laughs> um, yes, I, I would say Henry Tilney is a good um, comparative for Lord Orville, um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of people consider that the first uh, rom com ever, um, Evelina. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of OG in its own way. But yes, not quite the same um, tropes in that one. I think one of the reasons Frances Burney, I am a big fan of Frances Burney, but I think one of the reasons she hasn't translated as well for modern audiences is because, um, you know, I mean, Austen was just, she was the master. The others were, were good storytellers, but Austen mm-hmm. um, wrote so succinctly, I think, that she continues to be highly, highly readable today without, you know, even I have to use quite a bit of leaning on the footnotes in Evelina. Yes, exactly that. Like Francis Bernie, the others, talented, incredible storytellers, really innovating even with the novel and with storytelling. But Austin's just doing something on a whole other level. She's basically paving the way for Ulysses and for just classic, uh, like just really inventing the novel <laughs> as an art <Yes>. form <laughs> and as a as a path for philosophy and art and doing something very serious with what she's doing but yet she is wickedly funny so it, that's what's so great about doing a podcast like this is that you can talk about Austin on so many levels so but back to the tropes so what is what is it like to deploy your your favorite kind of novel and all those favorite tropes Felicity into something that you are writing. What is it like to take that from reading, enjoying, escaping into crafting? Um, it's tricky. It's definitely tricky. And one of the things I realized when I um, sat down to write a novel is that um, you can be a wonderful, like you can be a reader, a lifelong reader, you can dabble in creative writing your whole life. But when it actually comes to writing a novel, um, there you need to study the craft like in my opinion you need to really know the craft of writing a novel the structure involved in it um and you know my first novel I sat down in the pandemic and and did what writers call pantsing the novel which means I just um I wrote a story that came to me and I sort of wrote it down um and of course because I've been a reader my whole life there was some structure to it but it wasn't planned out um and in the process of writing that and giving it to readers um, I began to realize some of the areas that I was uh, making some mistakes and engaging my readers. And it, I started to study writing. I started to st- study it seriously. Mm-hmm. No matter how much you've written, <laughs> and I've written five novels at this point, no matter oh. how much you've written, um, you can never, as an author, um, see your work the way a reader sees it because within your head uh, this like your imagination has created that all of these characters this world this story but to get it down on the page 
um, is tricky and you'll invariably leave some things out. And that's mm -hmm. why it becomes very important in the process of writing your novel to have friends who are, who like your who read romance for example if you're writing a romance yeah. novel who are willing to to read your work and say you know hey i'm not understanding the connection between this scene and that scene or why mm -hmm. your character is behaving this way or um you know many other things that turn um turn readers off of a book once i once i started to study that um and I, I realized how flawed the first two novels that I had written were, and then I decided to sort of start fresh, and I wrote A Lady's Risk with that mindset um, to um, create uh, a Regency romance that hearkened back a bit to Georgette Hare. If do you read Georgette Hare by any chance? Oh, uh, I, I not not a lot, but yes, I've dipped into it. <laughs> yes, maybe the original um, modern uh, Austen imitator, definitely the originator of the Regency romance mm -hmm. genre, in yes. my opinion. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I decided to do that, and but I I really wanted to create a well structured novel too. So, yeah, it sounds like it's a real blending of, you know, that imagination that you need um, for the art and then also just the discipline that you need for the craft. And, and and it sounds it's actually inspiring, probably, to a lot of people to hear that you you read about it and learned, you know, and that that's the way you do it. Like, just like you do pretty much anything else, you know, it's figure out, like, how do you do this? What What's the recipe? So that that's wonderful to hear. Now, okay, hard left turn, Felicity, in the questions. Uh, can we talk about rakes and heroes? <laughs> yes. What do you? I'm quite think? excited about this, actually. Yes. yes. Okay. What what makes a good hero? Because your hero, Nicholas Burton or Lord Holbrook, is very much sort of on a balancing line between. So to me, it seems like between sort of rakish hero and rakish rake, <laughs> and uh, there's even a another uh, wonderful sort of possible hero, which is very Austin-like of you, a physician, Alexander, who almost kind of strikes me as kind of a knightly character, who's very strong, good, and unwavering, whereas our hero with the cap capital H, Nicholas Burton, Lord Nicholas, is somewhat wavering uh, and needs a study partner in a way. So how do you balance as a writer and just what do you love about writing rakes and heroes um, that that kind of maintains that balance for you? Yes. So this series has five different heroes. Um, so Alexander, the physician, um, who is uh, Nicholas's best friend in this book, will have his own book. All right. Oh, that's fantastic. Because <laughs> I liked him a lot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he's quite nice. Um, so each one of my heroes is different. They, the unifying thing between them is that they're five old friends. They've been friends for a long time. Um, but each one is is quite different. Um, ah, so it's all the guys he hangs out with. Yes. It goes into London. They all, it, it kind of reminds me of Dickens, weirdly, because Dickens, uh, who... who probably is not inspiring in anything like any of these men, <laughs> except that he had his own place in London and he liked to hole up in it and have, you know, her like outrageous, huge meals and lots of alcohol. <laughs> and right. it kind of reminds me of, it just reminded me of that. 
Yes. Well, if you, um, if you like history books, Amanda Vickery's, um, uh, oh gosh, sorry. I'm draw drawing a blank on the actual title of the book <laughs> behind closed doors. Yes. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Cool. Um, yeah, she, she talks about, um, gentlemen at home and that, and I found that quite inspiring, oh. um, too, in creating these five men. So three of them live together, um, and only really show up in one scene, I think, in a lady's risk. Um, but, uh, all five of them show up in the book, but Nicholas and Alexander, are the big ones in this, in this book, you're right. Uh, Nicholas is the hero and Alexander is his best friend who sort of helps him along on his, um, on his journey in this book. Um, so yes, each one of my heroes is different. And with Nicholas, I, um, played with the idea of an alpha hero. I think, um, alpha heroes as they have existed in, in the past do require a little bit of adaptation um, for a modern audience um, because our our world is changing for the better and um, sort of equality between the sexes, the way men should treat women, what makes a equal relationship between two people, and definitely on issues regarding consent um, and uh, yeah, uh, regarding consent really. Yeah, that's so. I'm so glad you brought that up because, especially regarding hair, the, her name has come up as more sort of the 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 frankly the problematic, as they would say, aspects of of those novels. And so updating them just seems like a really good idea. So I'm glad you you spelled that out. Right, and even if you um, read some wonderful Regency romance writers who are currently still writing, but when they were publishing publishing in the 90s, early 2000s, the standards were different. Um, and so what you'll see in in books that were published then, traditionally published then, um, is different from what you'll see in books that are published now. And I think one of the loveliest things about a romance book versus anything else, including um, romance films, is the way it can explore different fantasies that we might have very, very safely. <laughs> In a romance book, nobody gets their characters. They're not real people. There's no actor or performer being exploited. You know, you, you can explore some things that might be um, a little bit trickier. That being said, I think that's the way romance has been written for many decades. And as a you know, romance writer publishing now, well past uh, hashtag me too, um, well past conversations that have been needing to happen for a very, very long time around consent and treatment um, of, of women. And I think one of the, the exciting challenges in writing romance now is learning how or, or making consent sexy in a book and still feel historically accurate, plausible, um, if you're writing historical romance. And um, that was one of the things I really have enjoyed doing in this series. That's awesome to hear that. I mean, and you anticipated so many of my questions right there. <laughs> I literally was asking you exactly about all of that. And so to follow up, uh, you know, when this comes, you know, we're thinking with the Austin connection, we think about Jane Austen. While we're on heroes and rakes, because there's so much we could talk about with what you just said, um, and consent and making consent sexy. 
your Lord Nicholas apologizes. Can you talk a little bit more about making consent sexy? Was Austin already there? Uh, does she kind of play well today or not? And and how do you do that? How do you make uh, consent sexy? Yeah, um, was Austin already there? Let me start with that. Um, I am not an Austin scholar. I am a massive Austin fan. And I do think... Even gen- better. <laughs> <laughs> without, without really thinking that through... Um, in a scholarly way, I do think she she was already there. I maybe I know there are some discussions around nightly um, possibly grooming Emma, um, <laughs> and the fact that he said he had been in love with her since she was thirteen is obviously problematic for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know I do look at that through historical context. A woman was marriageable at the age of 15 in those days, and even younger. Marie Antoinette was 14 when she married. Um, it was by no means unheard of. Um, so I do think, you know, if I, I can separate that out with Knightley, and I don't think of any of the others that... Um, or any place in Austin where I get a sense of um, a woman not having consent in mm-hmm. in the situation. Right. Yeah. And obviously she doesn't explore um, the more sensual side of the romance, but, um, and that's why like, as you're getting into a modern romance writer of historical romance, uh, it does become trickier for us um, because there's, a fine line between what might have been acceptable then and trying to have some historical accuracy in your book and what should be published at least for traditional publishers today that was the that's the line i walk <laughs> i think and one of the ways that I, I i guess i have a lot of awareness around um people touching each other and when is it okay to to touch someone and there are a few times actually in the book where my hero nicholas is objectified by other women and people touch him and he doesn't like it and he doesn't say anything against it but he doesn't like it and i think that it works both ways um that men and women uh, are subjected to unwanted advances and um that really you know that that's not sexy that's not nice it it doesn't it's very problematic so a simple line in your book <laughs> making sure that it's okay for one character to touch another is uh is a really easy thing to put in and i would hope that that would help us in our sort of day-to-day interactions with other people be a little bit more aware of of when we might be touching in ways that people uh, feel uncomfortable with listening to you felicity i realized that you know in some ways the art can in some ways shape the culture right like your stories and your um shaping these heroes and you're shaping these heroines and all of you writing romance right now are doing this you're doing this work of kind of shaping what we find attractive um and and what romance is for for the people reading these which is which is really fascinating and absolutely austin was doing that i feel um now i do feel like consent even though 
it wasn't called that uh, particularly, but it's such a big part of her stories, actually, when you really think about it. I mean, the whole terrible first proposal of Darcy, you know, while we're on Pride and Prejudice, followed by the second proposal is all about assumption, right? And not assuming, uh, just having to step down from his place of superiority. And he makes that very clear in that final conversation that's always, almost always in Austin between the two people, you know, it's like... I was superior. I was spoiled. I think he uses that word. Uh, and having to step down from that to find an equal partner and to acknowledge her uh, strengths, you know, which is really, th th that is what consent is about too. It's about power, right? So it's like finding an equality of power and also valuing power differently, um, putting power to inner resources, someone who's intelligent, like Lizzie, who doesn't have money, who doesn't have land, but has intelligence and has character and has courage. She has more resources than Darcy does, right? Like, <laughs> but hers are, hers are inner resources and his are outer resources. So he has to come to realize that. So it is about, in some ways, it is about consent. Then also you can see with Mr. Collins. I mean, Mr. Collins is a portrait of someone who assumes and is an extreme version of, of non-consensual uh, relations and where he's going. Absolutely. And and even as you say, the touching, the touching is so important. And I feel like it's very important in that scene. He's just so insistent. It's important with uh, El Elton, Mr. Elton and Emma in the carriage. Very important, that lack of consent. So, so I feel like Austin was going there. I mean, it might be that, you know, consent is sexy um, in Austin, and that power that it is because it comes from a position of strength. You know, like I feel like Austin's portraying her heroes. Um, these men have the strength to be able to step down from where they are. And it does take that. It takes a lot of insight. It takes intelligence. Uh, it takes all kinds of intelligence to be able to be that astute um, and, and to, and to res resign yourself before someone, you know, so in some ways, it's just seen as very sexy. <laughs> yes, it's <just> so cool. <laughs> really. But you know, it seems like a, a generation, perhaps of hair, a generation of Regency um, didn't take that aspect of Austin and kind of veered away from it. And, you know, looking what I, from listening to uh, people talking about romance, um, I wonder about the word fantasy. I think you're you're mentioning Felicity that there's like you're straddling a certain thing that like you said these are not real people, and it's funny that you have to explain that. I I think you do though. I think you do have to explain that because I think a lot of times we forget that that women also and and it's all kinds of writers reading romances. I mean, all kinds of readers reading romances. I'm you know the demographic, um, but anybody read not just women. Anybody reading these romances. Is, is indulging in a sense of fantasy that sometimes does involve, this is totally my observation, and I don't know much about this, but I'm interested in your thought. The fantasy can involve certain kinds of oppression and certain kind of reenactment, right, of oppressive roles. What is going on with that? And it seems like, it's, to me, the answer is fantasy. And people forget that this is not a guide for life. Austin was also indulging in fantasy to some extent. I don't think she expected to come across a Darcy or a Knightley in her life. I think that's the sad truth. I think she she realized, like, that was not going to come. That's not going to happen. I am going to have to write this person. But she, what, why she's so huge is she was writing not only 
romance, but she was writing human humanity. And she was writing politics. She was writing a social order, which is what made her a genius and an artist. But she also is, I think, indulging in a little bit of fantasy. So what do you think of this idea of fantasy in that like it can go to, to weird places and it can work out a lot of things and that ultimately it's fantasy? Right. So um, I am the first one to say that anything um, consenting adults wish to engage in um, is, you know, fair game, right? Um, as long as both partners feel comfortable and safe and there is consent, um, there should always be um, complete freedom within that relationship to um, explore what, uh, what, you're interested in doing. And I think that there is a place for that definitely in romance writing. Of course, um, people may not want to do that with their partner. They may want to read about it in a book and that's totally fine. And that's totally cool. Um, um, and definitely in my level of steam, if you, if you go back, um, 20 or 30 years in books that were published, as I was saying earlier, you're going to find, um, problematic, what I would call problematic scenes. If, obviously problematic if they were actually happening in real life between two people. Um, you know, maybe where the woman might be a captive and not have a way out. And, you know, there's, you know, that that's, that's not equal. Right. 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 Uh, or there's a, like a clear seduction or there's a strong power imbalance, any of those kinds of things that that doesn't mean that it can't be sexy for the person reading the story. <laughs> and I totally, totally hear that. I totally understand that. I am a huge fan of, of old 19, like, you know, rom-coms from the twenties, the thirties or the thirties really in the forties and the fifties. And, you know, there's a lot <laughs> yeah. of problematic stuff. Yes. In there. People are kidnapped. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yet, you know, that's actually what I grew up watching old movies with my grandmother who loved them. Um, if I think about some of the things that I thought were really romantic stories when I was younger um, and I look at them now, or I watch them with my daughter who is almost 15 and she picks up on, on so much stuff that's, that's problematic and feels very, very uncomfortable for her. So what I'm trying to sort of look at as we're sort of moving forward, at least for some of us romance writers, is how can we change what maybe the 20th century sort of put into our heads was sexy behavior, like a, like, you know, a man with a power imbalance, you know, a boss at work with a secretary or things like that. Um, how can we, yes, many of us grew up thinking that that was okay, but how can we sort of change the narrative now um, and start producing some works that don't have those things in them and still can be viewed as sexy so that um, we're not sort of perpetuating that same that same story that it's it's okay for a woman to be treated in certain ways <laughs> which so I'm not I, I hope it makes sense that I'm not like taking I'm not detracting from things that were produced at other times or saying you know that this shouldn't be read anymore this should be canceled or anything like that I'm definitely not saying that um just as I spoke about Knightley and Emma's relationship earlier that I I can't like, I don't see that as a grooming relationship because I think the the time in which it was written, that wasn't, that, that that's not really applicable to that particular situation. 
but I would like to see more things now. I'd like to see it, you know, in sexy movies um, and and sexy books where there aren't some of those things. You know, you don't have a punishing fail. You don't have a woman who doesn't have choices. You don't have um, blatant seduction that um, that you know borders on um, or isn't is in fact non consensual. Yeah. Um, let's just have something. Let's also have some other things that don't have that. And um, yeah, so so that's that's kind of where I'm coming from. That's great, and and it's it's wonderful to see this, and and not because you know it's 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 fiction. There's fantasy, but it is great to see these updates, just because it's a reflection of us too, of of our culture, of what we find sexy is is changing because it's healthier because hopefully because our lives are getting healthier our culture is getting healthier you know you are listening to the austin connection we're talking about how romance authors like our guest felicity george are updating and adapting heroes and alpha heroes and also our heroines are getting updates and coming up We're talking about a word that wasn't perhaps used by Austin, but the concept certainly is all over her stories. That word is consent. Can consent, a very contemporary word, enter into a steamy romance? And how do writers walk that line between sexy, consensual, historical accuracy, and what is publishable? This is the line author Felicity George says she walks as a romance writer today. There's a lot there. We're continuing the conversation here on The Austin Connection. Enjoy. So I am so into the long 18th century. I always have been. So the long 18th century is basically the time from um, the beginning of the reign of William and Mary in the early, like in the uh, 17, sorry, in the 1690s until um, some people consider that it goes up until definitely through the Battle of Waterloo, maybe through the end of the Regency. Some people even push it up to the end of the Georgian era, which was uh, in 1837 when Queen Victoria became queen. So um, anything really that happens in the 18th century into the early um, 19th century, I've I've been fascinated with since I was a child. So that includes the American Revolution, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, French Revolution, British history at the time, um, Canadian history, War of 1812. Um, Wow, I see lots of series in your future, Felicity. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I uh, actually chose Regency. I always loved Regency romance. And uh, I chose Regency for a lady's risk, in part because uh, several of my friends asked for something set during uh, Bridgerton time period, because Bridgerton had just come out. And I I knew I could do that. You got to look after your friends. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, they were important because I needed them for readers. I was going to say, they're probably your readers too. So (laughs) So I had to please them. Um, So I chose Regency there. And um, because it is, oh gosh, arguably maybe the most popular historical um, romance time period, Um, probably because the rom-com was sort of developed right before the Regency. So, uh, yes, that's why I chose the Regency. Why I've always loved the 18th century, um, 
I'm not entirely sure, but it was such um, a fascinating century. It was the beginning of modern times um, in the sense that like if any of us, if we were to, if we were to be transported to Christmas in London in the year 1812, um, let's say, there would be so much that would be familiar or any other holiday mm. or time period shops consumer culture um, developed during the 18th century. Prior to that, people didn't shop for pleasure. <laughs> there was no such thing. It was the time in which wars, um, of course, there have been terrible wars since the 18th century, but it was the time in which uh, people started to realize that more money could be made by a government through trade. Trade was more profitable than than war. So you didn't have to take over other countries, you you could trade with other countries. And um, so it's the beginning of um, the age of prosperity that we've really been living in for the past more than 200 years. Um, beginning of modern medicine, too. One of the reasons I have a doctor character is because, well, my husband is a physician, um, and I'm fascinated with the changes that occurred uh, in medicine in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, including the the first vaccine, of course, with the smallpox vaccine, which was developed in the late 1700s. It's just an absolutely fascinating time period. It yeah. is the past with so much that is still familiar to us now. It is. It's it's time travel in a way. That's that's one of the amazing things about it. You know, about reading Austin or reading anything that's recreated from that period like you, when there's an author like you, Felicity, who just really knows that period and just geeks out totally on that period. You know? I did want to, you know, make sure that that showed up in my books. And I know it's not to everyone's, like, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but um, I, I have gotten a little bit of criticism that I uh, <laughs> am a little bit to like dwell a little bit too much in the historical details. <laughs> oh, I loved it. I love, I love your historical details in A Lady's Risk. Those were the parts where I was really getting excited. You, uh, speaking of updating your heroes, we didn't talk about this. You also update the her heroine, uh, Maggie, you know, is a science geek. Like I loved that about her. Like she, she doesn't read novels like a lot of Austin's characters. Um, she likes reading science and, 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 and specifically agriculture and you were able to insert those and I, I really liked that detail but carry on <laughs> no I, I whatever I think I was still just <laughs> going on about how much I loved the time period but editors are like okay a little bit too much about agricultural you know life of the and you know farming practices of you know 1813 <laughs> You know, but it was so important. And I really, I really wanted that to come out in this book. Um, because, you know, I, these people, <laughs> like, if you're talking about high society at the time, they were still very agrarian based, it was like wealth was agrarian based. So it was based on the amount of land that you owed. So the health of the land and the amount of money that it could make and your crops and things like that were actually critically important to to your to your uh, to your wealth. Um, they weren't investing in other things beyond their land yet, not much. So I really wanted, I feel like that's been absent in a lot of books. These people would actually have to have been very interested in their land. They, If they cared, if they wanted to um, have a profitable estate, then, you know, they, they do actually 
aftercare. And of course, Maggie, because of the way her older half brother has um, wasted um, the family fortune, like it's so critically important to her to yes. know everything that she can to um, um, make her estate as, as strong as possible and to have as much information as she can to, to be a successful um, landowner. so much felicity we're connected so we'll stay in touch okay okay all right thank you janet bye Bye, felicity bye bye that's the austin connection for this time thank you for joining us as always you can find more conversations about the stories of jane austen how they connect to us today and how they connect us to each other and also you can find conversations about the films the books at the Austin Connection on Substack. That's at austinconnection.substack.com. Our latest post breaks down what's going on in that disastrous proposal scene between Darcy and Elizabeth and Pride and Prejudice. There's so much going on in that scene. And Jane Austen blocked it all out in her text. That's at austinconnection.substack.org. Thank you for listening. See you there. <laughs>